onward we go uh, to the, the book of Joshua. Uh, in case you didn't notice, uh, the band this morning, uh, the average age precipitously dropped this morning. <laughs> uh, we don't, but, but I, I do want to say this. We have really, we have really, really over the years, um, teens have not just been one of these things. We chose not to view teenagers through the prism of, okay, uh, our job as a church is to keep them between the ditches. Uh, I think that's a very patronizing way to approach teenagers. I think they have a lot to offer the kingdom of God. Uh, and so since the very beginning, uh, they have been in the sound booth. They've been on the stage. They've been uh, serving in various ministry capacities uh, since we've started. And I look forward to that continuing. Some of our, the reason I believe as much as I do in the future of New Vintage Church is because uh, we have always developed uh, the gifts that God has, has put in the next generation. And so um, that's something that we really value and, and prize here. So I want you to know if you're a young person or you're, you're thinking about having a young person someday, um, here at New Vintage Church, we want them to be able to serve in, in, in big boy and big girl positions uh, where uh, when they're ready, uh, that we can, we can hand them the ball and say, hey, go give it a run and let's, let's see how we can empower you to, for the kingdom of God. And with that in mind, we'll turn to old man Joshua, who's getting ready to pass the baton. Uh, we're here at the end of a series we've been doing all summer long called Ready for, Ready for uh, is it anything or everything? Whatever. It's only been 10 weeks. I'm getting old too, so I don't really remember. There we go. It's anything. Um, ready for anything. That it's more important than knowing the future and knowing, okay, God's going to do this and then he's going to do that. And, you know, God revealed to me what your plan is or whatever is to be ready for whatever it is. So the people of Israel, as you know, they're led by pillar of cloud, fire, they get daily bread. They don't have big, long, 10-year strategic plans and all of that. They're led kind of day by day. And so I suggested to us at the very beginning that what the book of Joshua teaches us, among other things, is that being ready spiritually for whatever it is that happens is really what God desires from us, and then He will lead us forward as He sees fit, rather than us trying to figure out the future, and then how do I prepare for that? Because we really don't know the future. Now, Joshua is an old man. You know you're old when the Bible says you're old. In Joshua 23, the Bible says Joshua's old. In 23 chapter 1, 23 chapter 2, Joshua goes, I'm old. So at that point, you know he's getting old. I know the feeling. When we went to Petco Park about maybe five years ago, uh, I took my daughters around because I really wanted them. I, I'm, I'm kind of committed to making them enjoy baseball. So even if they don't, we're going to try, and I'm going to keep trying until uh, I can no longer go to baseball games. I'm going to drag them with me, and I'm going to try to teach them how awesome the experience is. And we were going around the periphery of the ballpark, and they have one of those radar gun machines, you know, where you throw the ball as hard as you can, and then they radar gun your throw. They show you how fast you threw. And then everybody stands back and either laughs or stands in awe. So I stopped. I said, girls, watch this. Dad's about ready to put on a demonstration, get the cameras rolling here, get the scouts out here. Here it goes. We got there. Guy says, it costs a dollar. I looked at him and I said, you should be paying me to watch this, bud. Watch this. Give me the ball. Gave him the dollar. Picked it up. Put it in my hand. Reared back. Threw as hard as I could. Okay. And two things became very obvious as soon as I let that ball go. Okay. All right. The first was the radar gun was broken. All right. That, that was clearly the problem. That was one. Number two was I was getting a lot older. I mean, I'm telling you, it felt like somebody took 
a, a serrated razor blade and opened up my shoulder and went to my rotator cuff and sliced it and then injected a shot of napalm into my shoulder. It was absolutely devastatingly painful. Like when I threw it, like flash cubes started going off in my eyes. My arm absolutely was excruciating pain. And I thought to myself, I go, oh no, I'm gonna be, I am officially now, I'm officially getting old. Now, some of you have noticed that a lot longer than I did, but none of us want to admit it. You never want to go, okay, the end might be near. Uh, my days of doing X and Y and Z are over. I don't, need to be, I don't need to be shopping at those stores. I don't need to be doing those kinds of things anymore. I don't need to be trying to run you know, a marathon at, at, at 75 years old. Now, some of you are going, oh, I can run it at 75. And we, we talked last week about Caleb, who had 85. And he says, hey, man, I'm still, I've still got it. I can still defend the home front. Give me the land. Amen. Give me the land, man. And so it's not meant to be discouraging. It's meant, though, to be a, a dose of realism. 110, Joshua dies at, right? You think about what you want to pass on to the next generation, especially your own kids. I want them to love baseball. I want them to love good books. I want to be able to teach them, hey, go read this and get lost in that book so you understand how wonderful it is to get lost in a good book. Listen to this music because it's awesome. It's my music. It's awesome. I want them to go see great shows and experience the great creativity of others. I want them to hear concerts. I want them to travel and see great parts of the world. I want them to travel around Europe. I want to pass on to them history. I want to pass on to them stuff about our family that matters. I want to pass on all that stuff. And at the end of the day, when I get to the end, the big question is going to be, did you pass on Jesus or not? God's not going to go, good job. I'm really glad that they read Thoreau. Glad you slipped that one in there, Tim. For a second, I was worried they wouldn't get that one. Or, good job, Tim. They saw the Godfather trilogy. I mean, what he's going to do is he's going to look at me and he's going to go, I entrusted you with my, my case, three daughters. His daughters, not mine. Did you pass it on or not? Did you pass the baton? Were you as enthusiastic? For them to get to know my son and learn how to serve me all their days, as you were that they knew the rules of baseball, or that you know they knew who so and so was, or that they read that book, or that they got to have these great vacations. Did you care enough, Tim? Did you did you help them understand how what can pull a family together like nothing else is life in Christ, not just oh hey remember when we played that killer game of pool volleyball at the resort in August? That what holds you together is fundamentally different from a biblical perspective than what often gets passed on these days. So as Joshua is getting older, you get the sense he's ready to pass the baton. You know you're getting old when the Bible says you're old. That's called foreshadowing. It means the end is near, brother. And to those of us who are concerned more with passing on our estate than our faith, this text today has a really strong word for us. It shouldn't be the case. As Joshua gets on in years, and again, he's one of the few biblical heroes that doesn't really have any serious dings in his resume. I mean, he really is a virtuous guy. He really does seek to, if, if the nation itself is getting out of line, anybody in the nation is getting out of line, if he feels like he's getting out of line, he does everything he can to restore things to where 
the people are honoring God every day, heart, mind, soul, and strength, everything. No, uh, I mean, just complete, utter righteousness. He's got a very clear sense of direction because in his mind, that's how you're ready for, for anything. Amen. You want to be ready for anything, stay close to God. And when you stay close to God, you're ready. You, you can take Jericho. You can handle whatever the squabbles are in the community. Without God, you can't win. That's a guaranteed loss. So Joshua's seen fire and rain. He'd seen so much. He's seen slavery and liberation and wandering and battle and victory and defeat. The miracle of God's promises being fulfilled. And now at the end of his life, it's time for him to pass things on to the spiritual children of the faith. So we're going to read Joshua 24, 14 to 18. We're going to read actually a lot, so keep your Bible open to that passage. Uh, we're going to kind of read our way through the chapter over the course of the morning here. So here's what Joshua says to the people as he gets toward the end. So fear the Lord and serve Him wholeheartedly. He is a resounding gong on this point. He just says it and says it and says it and says it. As I told you last week, I can sum up almost every sermon I ever preach with that line. Fear the Lord and serve Him wholeheartedly. And then he says, put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Amen. The people replied, we would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. They'd do it like 10 minutes later, but they don't think they would. We would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods, for the Lord our God is the one who rescued our ancestors from slavery in the land of Egypt. He performed mighty miracles before our very eyes. As we traveled through the wilderness among our enemies, He preserved us. It was the Lord who drove out the Amorites and the other nations living here in the land, so we too will serve the Lord, for He alone is God. All right, let's learn a little Hebrew this morning. All right, two syllables. Aw, like you see a puppy. All right, say it with me. Aw, okay, bad, like you're, you're chastening the puppy, like you peed on the floor. Bad, aw, bad. That's the word, aw, bad, means serve. You wonder how many times that word shows up in just chapter 24. Aw, bad, aw, bad. Guess. A hundred. That's really high. No, not quite that many. Uh, anybody else? And then, look, give me an intelligent guess. <laughs> I just played Scott. <laughs> what, I'm just mad. I love you, Scott. Where, where, what else we got? What? 17. Ooh, pretty good. What was the other one? 63. No, man, you guys. Woo. I should have. Yeah. The right answer is 16. In chapter 24 alone, 16 times. Aw bad, aw bad, aw bad, aw bad. Serve, 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 serve to serve. Serve, serve, serve to serve is what he says. Serve the Lord, serve the Lord. Don't serve idols. Don't serve that, serve that. Don't serve that, serve that. Aw bad, aw bad, aw bad. 16 times, four times in the chapter right before. 
16 times. He says it. Serve, 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 serve. He wants to encourage the people to continue to serve the Lord with full devotion. And so he points out to them, so which idols, if you don't serve God, which ones are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the idols of the people whose land you're now inhabiting because they're not around anymore? Or will it be the people that we just trounced through their village in victory? Um, you know, the, the place that we, we just drove through. It's a complete disaster. You want their idols or you want the one right here? If it's not going to be God. And of course they say, no, we'll serve the Lord. Joshua says, for me and my family, we're going to serve God. Now serve Him and serve Him wholeheartedly. See, to serve, it doesn't mean just, hey, I, I show up and you know, mop the floor. It can mean that. It's really more about uh, being fully obedient to God in worshiping Him only. And he says this interesting thing. It's basically a version of a Bob Dylan song, or Bob got it from him. He wrote a song called Serve Somebody. And basically says, hey, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're, you're going to serve somebody. Everybody serves somebody. That's Joshua's big point. So you can say, I'm not going to serve God. Well, you're serving somebody whether you want to admit it or not. If what you do is go from one recreational thing to the next, life is one big vacation, you're serving your pleasures. It's you. Uh, if what you're not serving God and you're serving something else, I, I know some folks that are, uh, the, their kids are the, kind of their little cult objects. That instead of worshiping God who gave them those children and listening to God and saying, hey, what do you, how do you want me to raise your kids that you gave me? You're, they're your sons and daughters before they were mine. After all, He knit them together in their mother's womb. So they're yours first. How do you want me to raise them? And how do I raise my children in the Lord? It becomes a one thing after another where I become so wrapped up in my kids that I worship the creation rather than the Creator, as Romans 1 would put it. But Joshua says, it's not a question if you're going to serve somebody. You will. It's about who you will serve. So choose today who you will serve. Not if you'll serve. Who it will be. And so it's good for us to pause this morning and ask ourselves who it is that we are in fact serving. I don't think this is one of those things that you just do once and then you're just in this hard, fast spot for the rest of your life. I think it's more free range than that you're in some like prison cell. And you have the freedom to kind of go up and down and move around as much as you want. But what makes Joshua such a powerful illustration of how this ought to work is that they go, they take a land, and then there's a, almost a routine that goes on. Okay, we're going to recommit ourselves to God. We're going to remem remember what He did here. We're going to set up this memorial so we will never forget, so that our kids won't forget. And then I'm going to ask you to renew your covenant at every single stop we make. So that as long as Joshua's alive, they seem to do okay. I is that one little hiccup, but it's not Joshua's fault. It was Achan's fault. But Achan now, guess what? On top of Achan, there's a rock with a memorial saying, remember what happened to Achan. Fear the Lord and serve him only. So I guess the question becomes then, are we able to be honest enough with ourselves to answer that question? Who, who, who are we serving? And maybe that's an answer that only God knows and you know. But you're serving somebody. Pastor and author Tim Keller offered a pretty potent definition of sin. I like it. It's not only doing bad things. It's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. 
that sin is primarily, at its essence, idolatry. In his bestseller, The Reason for God, he develops that line of thought a little bit. I'm going to read you an excerpt real quickly. Listen to how he puts it. He says uh, that there are particular kinds of brokenness and damage caused by idolatry, and he lists a few. He says, if you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner, you will end up being emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. If you center your life and identity on your family and children, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own, and at worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. If you center your life and your identity on your work and career, you will be a driven workaholic and probably a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will lose your family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, develop a rather deep depression. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. If you center your life on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you will be constantly and overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. You will fear confronting others and therefore will be a useless friend. If you center your life, get this one. If you center your life and identity, this is a timely one. He wrote this in 2008. This is very timely. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, in quotes, you're going to divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies because without them you have no purpose. Oh, If you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will. If if you are living up to your moral standards, become proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be devastating. And he goes on and on and on. That even things that are painted to look like God can become problems and snares. And so what's important to understand is what he's saying, that the Lord himself is what we serve. That the gift, the big cherry on top, the big, you know, the the big thing, like, what, what do I get out of this? Is God himself. It's not the trappings, it's not... The pleasures, it's not the, the, the gifts that God gives you. Those are, those are nice in the side, but the big gift, I mean, what God really, where He really outdoes Himself is by giving Himself to us. It's the Lord. We serve the Lord. We don't serve the things the Lord blesses us with. This is vitally, vitally, vitally important, sisters and brothers. The best life there is, is life lived serving God. And what does that look like? It looks like understanding that God himself is what has been given to us and our devotion is fully aimed in his direction. And so, as Jesus would say later, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. That serving God and really pursuing serving God every day will bless your family. You will see the world differently. So when you travel... You will see the world very differently when you're looking at mountains and lakes and oceans. Tonight, when we're all down at the beach, and we're sitting there and we're watching the ocean, you see the ocean differently. 
When you look into the face of a person that's frustrating you, you see a different person if you're following the Lord every day than if you're not. When you're angry with your enemies, you see your enemies differently if you're following the Lord. When you're fighting with your spouse, you see them differently if you're following the Lord every day and you're committed to serving Him only on a daily basis. Now next, Joshua does something I think is kind of cool and brilliant. Um, He goes reverse psychology on them. They go, yes, we will serve the Lord. And he does kind of like something that a coach would do. He goes, nah, you're not. He kind of flips it around on them. Here's what he says, Joshua 24, 19 and 21. Then Joshua warned the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy and jealous God. He, won't forgive your, he will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you abandon the Lord and serve other gods, he'll turn against you and destroy you, even though he's been so good to you. Even though he's been so good to you. But the people answered Joshua, no. We will serve the Lord. Hmm. So he does this reverse psychology thing. You know, I'd tell you, but you'd probably tell somebody else and then I'd get in trouble. No, I won't tell anybody. Yeah, I think you would. You're going to tell somebody. No. You ever do that to your kids or somebody else, a friend of yours? You know, I'd put you as the leadoff hitter, but you don't listen to what I say. Yes, I do. Nah, you're not able. Your ears are closed. I can't do that. Yes, you can. You use it as a way to get them to commit themselves, to double down, to simply say, oh, Commit yourself to the Lord every day. Yes, we will serve the Lord. Nah, you're not able to. You think you can, but you can't. Yes, I can. I really can. Nah. Every decision that you make that matters in life benefits from redeciding. I don't know if that's a real word, but it ought to be. <laughs> this is one reason why consistency in spiritual practice matters. When you show up for church on the weekends, one of the things you're doing is you're redeciding to follow Jesus. Among other things, right? When you open up your Bible, you're redeciding. Every spiritual habit, and, and that's why we focus as much on habits as we do, is because it does shape you spiritually, and the, one of the factors in that spiritual formation is simply making the decision again and again and again and again and again. Yes. I'm following Jesus today. So that's why I think the Scriptures focus as much on daily obedience rather than saying, all right, I'm going I'm to try to uh, read the Bible cover to cover 15 times in the next six months or kind of random strategic plans. It's faithfulness in the everyday. I show up ready for anything, and when anything comes my way, now I'm ready. And so I've, I honor God on a daily basis. I'm redeciding almost moment to moment. When, when you're in a, a moment of temptation, you're on the road, let's say, for business. Somebody flirts with you in a hotel lobby, and you make a decision to walk away. You're redeciding. Right. You're saying, no, really, I will serve the Lord. No, for real. Ah, you can't serve the Lord. That's Satan whispering in your ear, and you're going, yes, I can. I will. I will. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Oh, my kid's whining and, and they're fussing about going to church today. We're going to redecide. Right now, I'm committing myself to doing this. We as a family are committed to doing this. We're going to redecide right now. Get in the car. <laughs> Hopefully, it's not that bad. 
but that moment, right, where you're, that you benefit from re-deciding these things. Now, there are people who say, once you decide, uh, and it's not totally off base from a spiritual standpoint, hey, once you make the decision and give your life to Jesus, it's a done deal. It is, and it's not. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about being able to honor the Lord on a daily basis. And so, if you're not honoring God on a daily basis, you're really missing the overall point of the Christian life, which has a lot to do with conformity into the image of God's Son. To become somebody who looks more like Jesus every day. And that's why we're given these admonitions in Scripture. It's one reason why consistency in spiritual practice is as important as it is. Joshua not only is going to set up this sequence of memorials, but he asks them repeatedly to confess out loud. Why does he do that? Well, one of them, too, he's about to unveil, is, okay, y'all heard that, witnesses. Joshua 24, 22 to 26. After they say, yes, we can, he says, all right, you are a witness to your own decision, Joshua said. You have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, they replied. We are witnesses to what we've said. All right, then, Joshua said, destroy the idols among you. Wait a minute. You have idols among you. He knew it, right? That's why he's saying, you're not ready to serve the Lord. You have idols among you. He says, fine then, destroy the idols among you and turn your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God. We will obey him alone. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day at Shechem committing them to follow the decrees and regulations of the Lord. He recorded these things in the book of God's instructions, and as a reminder of their agreement, he took a huge stone. Joshua really likes rocks, man. He took a huge stone, and he rolled it beneath the terebinth tree beside the tabernacle of the Lord. So he says, you are witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen the Lord. You know, there's a reason why at a blackjack table in Vegas, it's not you and the dealer in a back room with nobody else there. You got a whole table full of people. You got cameras everywhere. You have a pit boss making sure everything stays. And don't look at me like you have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) We all know you do. Why? Because witnesses matter. You want to try and convict somebody without a witness? I mean, I can remember just being a kid. We would play back in the day before you had cell phones or anything. You had a long summer. It was, there were no fall breaks and all this stuff now that you got. Like the long run from this day for, for just like nine months of solid pain of school. Very few vacations. Like, we got out on, like, Wednesday before Thanksgiving Day for Thanksgiving. You know, like, four days for Christmas. It was, it was pretty lean through that, but you had a big, long summer. Right. So in Long Beach, California, weather's great. We would play one-on-one basketball in front of uh, one, one kid at a basketball hoop just down the street from my folks. And we would play, this is how much time we had on our hands, to 100, one-on-one by ones. Yeah, and then we would just play all day long. Game after game after game after game. Boys have energy. This is about middle school. And I remember going, we used to create poster board championship belts. And whoever was the the champ got to wear that belt. Okay? So by the time we stopped playing, I was the reigning champ, just saying. All right? Very proud of that. The Ava Street 
uh, you know, one-on-one championship belt is, was around my waist. I beat Grant by 30 points, my buddy, in his driveway. And the deal was, if I beat you by more than 20, I get to take your Nintendo to my house for three days. And he said, all right, let's do it. You're not going to beat me by 20. I beat him by 30. All the other kids roll up on their skateboards at the end. Whereas I'm, I'm totally just punishing this guy. Game ends. I said, let's go get the Nintendo. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, I go, I get your Nintendo. What are you talking about? The bet we made 100 points ago. That bet. We didn't make any bet. And I look up for signs of lightning or anything. <laughs> and I'm going, that, no, 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 no. So I sit there, and I'm totally offended. I wasn't allowed to have a video game system on my, my house. My parents thought it turned your mind to mush or whatever. So this was a big, stinking deal for me. We were playing for keeps. Okay? And the, there was a very clear bet. But you know what there wasn't? No witnesses. None. And because of that, when there are no witnesses, you know what gets to happen? You can do almost anything you want. But when there are witnesses, there are a couple of things that happen. Number one is accountability. Right? There's a reason why. When I marry a couple, I stand up and I go, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today in the presence of God and these witnesses. When we baptize somebody, it's not done in isolation. We don't self-baptize. You know why? Because weird things happen when there are no witnesses. People don't honor their commitments. See, it's one thing for you to commit something to somebody kind of in private or in, in your own little heart. But we don't tend to honor those. And so even in those, in those moments where Unfortunately, or in a sad moment, there, there ends up being a divorce after one of those marriages. You know what I've never had is somebody deny they knew the other person. I've never had them go, who's that? You know, they're crazy. I have no idea who is this woman. They never do that. You know why? Witnesses. We were all there. We all saw it, man. We all saw it. You ever sign an important document? What do you need? It needs to be notarized. Who's a notary? Essentially, a professional witness. That's not necessary, man. Just, just have a handshake on the mortgage. <laughs> on, the, on the multi-million dollar loan. Or have, just shake hands. In fact, here's a, here's a rock memorial like Joshua did. We'll just keep it there. And, and nobody needs to know. We all understand. We want somebody else, if it matters, to see it. We want people to see it. Joshua's the same way. He says, y'all heard yourselves. You guys heard it. And in the next section, he goes, and that rock heard you. (laughs) He says, and that rock is going to stand right there, all right, as a witness. That rock saw it. Now, I'm telling you right now, this is one of the reasons why I don't think a lot of, I'm I'm going to get risky here, all right? It's the end of the summer. Why not? The reason that we are so big on privacy in this country and in the church 
is because not having anybody see things allows us to keep our idols. Witnesses, though, that would mess that up. So all the stuff that's super touchy. I mean, if we, what if we, what if we started actually like, and I don't know, maybe there's like a rating like on Madden, the video game, and everybody who walked in here, you could say, yeah, you know, hey, so and so's a 95. They're great Christian. I mean, top to bottom, they're fast. They're uh, they got a great arm. They got whatever. That's a football game for those of you who aren't familiar with who Madden is or a video game or whatever. There's a rating system for Christians. And we put it on the, on the screen. This is how often they came to church over the summer. Uh, here's their giving record. Right? Well, that would be offensive, right? You all understand that stuff was public in Israel, right? Now, we don't do that. Not saying we will, so don't panic. <laughs> but I do wonder if we might be more faithful if we had more witnesses to what we do. It's one of the reasons why growth groups are a good idea, why we encourage people to get into them. It's one of the reasons why I think it's important that your teen goes to youth ministry events and gets to know the teens. So that even if they won't let you see, they might let other teenagers see. Witnesses matter to see these things, okay? So think it through. Joshua seems to think it's very, very important. I mean, we often run from this because we don't like to be reminded of what we ought to be doing or how we fail to live up to our vows, so we choose privacy and isolation instead. And in doing that, we give the evil one a fantastic advantage. Oh, some time ago I read about a kind of an unfortunate sad event up in Canada. There was an elderly couple in a house. Their son was a dog breeder of like sled dogs. They do that kind of thing up in Canada. And uh, they were, they were uh, he had 150 sled dogs out in his yard. Somehow, a wolf that was diseased kind of went, broke into the house when he was away and, 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 and harmed his parents. Okay, so the question became, got 150 stinking dogs. How in the world did a wolf get right through all of them? Well, so here's how he had them... Uh, posted. Now, me and I'm all chained just far enough apart that none of them could get in contact with each other or harm anybody else's animals. So the wolf rocks right through 150 dogs. Wolf would have been no match for the dogs. I mean, as you can see, those are decent-sized animals there, right? And walks right through them all because all they could do is just sit and bark and only be themselves. Now, one dog versus one wolf, that's not, a, that's not a good match. 150 on one would have been nice, huh? See, I think this is a better illustration for how we kind of choose to live, right? I can see everybody whenever I want, uh, but I keep it such a distance that I never really could. Nobody can really touch me. So I'm just going to live at the right distance. And the problem is, the roaring lion just walks right down the middle and takes whatever he wants. Because instead of having the actual strength of an army, I've got the resources of myself. Which if I was strong enough to live the perfect life and do everything, then I don't need the sacrifice of Christ. I'm not strong enough. That's like the first admission of being a Christian. I am a sinner in need of the grace of God. 
Okay, And instead of continuing to live a grace-filled, repentant life, we make the decision to, to isolate ourselves. And now we, look, we think we look mean, like, like one of these dogs. Like, oh, you know, hey, I'm here. Rawr. You know, like the, like the lion, like we're some sort of match for Satan one-on-one. We can't possibly beat him one-on-one. The salvific victory was won by Jesus once and for all. The war is won. The battle is to be fought together. 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 He has reminded us, our good friend Joshua, that we are in a battle, whether we realize it or not, and that we actually need each other. To be people of integrity, we need each other. To be people full of love, we need each other. For accountability, we need each other. One of the reasons that Coming here is important is because it puts us in proximity to our fellow witnesses. It helps us remember the vows we've taken and allows us to witness to one another in grace. It gives us the strength of an army rather than the mere resources and want to of an individual. So for those who serve the Lord, the primary, uh, you know, this is the primary context in which he chooses to release his divine powers among his people, the church. And so we're witnesses for one another. It's not just the screen is a witness, or like Joshua was about to say, the rock is a witness. The rock's a last resort. We're supposed to be going, hey, you doing okay? And so when some of you, and you guys have done this, uh, and I honor this, whenever a church member calls me up and says, hey, I want to talk, and they come sit down either by the fire pit or whatever, and we sit there and we talk about something going on in their life, and they're confessional or transparent, Okay, that's when you know they are now off the chain, so to speak. Satan just got defeated in a mighty way right there because now you know what you got? Witnesses. And now I can help them. And M can help. And you guys can help them. They're Christian brothers. So now Satan's not fighting just that person. They're fighting the whole stinking lot of us. And usually what he does then at that point is he runs off scared with his tail between his legs. Because at his core, he's a coward. At his core, Satan's a coward. So when this happens, I, I hate when I find out that, that somebody was dealing with something and they never, they never told anybody. They never put a discipline in their life that caused them to be in proximity to others who, could, who they could confess to, who they could say, I'm struggling or whatever. So hear me loud and clear, sisters and brothers. This is very, very, very important. So then he goes on, Joshua 24, 27 to 28. He says to all the people, again, the rock is a witness. And he says, this stone has heard everything the Lord said to us. <laughs> it will be a witness to testify against you if you go back on your word to God. Then Joshua sent all the people away to their own homelands. So he sets up another stone of witness here for covenant renewal. And that's in part because memory is vital to spiritual growth. We did a whole sermon on that, so I won't repeat it here. Uh, it's important for us to remember the times that God delivered us in a mighty way and the times that his discipline brought us back to him. So there are seven of these set up in the book of Joshua. I'm just going to read them off briefly. Chapter 4, verse 20, in Gilgal, a reminder of God's faithfulness in bringing Israel safely across the Jordan. 726, over Achan, dead body of Achan. Don't do this, was essentially the reminder, uh, the potential of Israel's unfaithfulness and the consequences of the result. In Ai, when they get their tail whipped in battle, 828 and 29, the king of Ai dies, and they put a pound of rocks over him, and that's a monument to Israel's second chance and restoration. 
In 830-32, Joshua takes and engraves a copy of the law as a reminder of Israel's duty to live in obedience uh, to God's instructions. Chapter 10, verse 27. Over the Amorite kings of Gibeon. There's another rock memorial place there. As a reminder of God's gracious action in defending Israel's covenant with a Canaanite city. Chapter 22, verse 34. Peace in the land of Gilead. A witness to the unity of the, of the, of the tribes west and east. We talked about that a little bit last week in this one. 24, 26 to 27. Covenant renewal at Shechem, a reminder of Israel's duty to serve the Lord who fulfilled every stinking promise in bringing them into the land. Do you have anything like that? A place where you, you put something down that regularly calls to mind what God's done? Or a lesson you learned? I think we do this sometimes when we, we open the old wedding picture album or baby pictures. And they want to be reminded of when they didn't drive me nuts. <laughs> or whatever it is, I'm going to look at baby pictures or you know, sometimes it's uh, other rituals that you have, right? I'm, I'm showing up early to serve. Um, I'm, I'm praying for somebody else or, for, or, or praying to God in gratitude for what he's done for me this week. Uh, and I do that in kind of a specific way and time. Maybe it's the ritual of, of, of giving. It's sitting down and going consciously, hey, this is my way of saying thank you to God. Whatever it is, find those stones of witness. Find those stones of witness. Just as Joshua tells the people that their witness is against one another, if they fail to be faithful to their vows, he says, hey, come here, and here's the, the uh, we're going to have these stones of witness set up. For, for Christians, we get one that's very powerful, and we do it at NBC, we do it every week. Communion's one. We call to mind the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. We call to mind all the other things that that sacrifice brings with it. We take the bread and the cup. We witness to the commitment we made when we were baptized, that we would serve the Lord all the way, that we would serve the Lord God all of our days. Joshua 24, 28 to 31, as we round third base. Here we go. Then Joshua sent all the people away to their own homelands. After this, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land that had been allocated at Timnath Sarah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. The people of Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him. Those who had personally experienced all the Lord had done for Israel. And with that, a great life came to a close. So the question then, I guess, gets pitched back to us, which is, what will your legacy be? What will your legacy be? Will it be one that... You know, hey, you know, Timmy, bless his heart, he, he introduced his kids to some great books and movies. Is that it? It's the best I could do with the life I'm in. Would God be pleased with that? Probably not. Maybe it would be Tim gave everything he had to helping raise his kids in the way of the Lord, which doesn't mean it comes out perfectly every time. It just means that in as much as it depends on me, I'm keeping the target right. I want God to help me, by his grace, keep that target right. Maybe it's he gave everything he could to preaching the word of God faithfully. Maybe, maybe it's all of those things. But what do you want, I guess, when that question is popped by God on that day? Who'd you serve? 
because you serve somebody. So some name will go in that space. And I want him to say, well done to me. I want him to say, you served me, you served my son as best you could. So we'll follow Joshua's procession here because we're getting ready, we're gathering around the Lord's table now to take the bread and the cup. And he begins by saying, put away the foreign gods among you. So whatever the idols are that might be there in your life means get rid of them. Then it's choosing who you'll serve. You'll serve somebody. So will it be God or will it be something else? Maybe it's making that decision. Maybe you've never made it. Maybe some of you it's redeciding. It's simply saying, yeah, I know when I was 12 I did X or Y, but since then I've really been just off doing my own thing. I've been in the far country. Maybe it's time to come home. But as we take the bread and the cup, what you need to get every, and this is why we do it every week, it's important. This is a stone of remembrance for us to remember the great battle that was fought and won by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on our behalf so that we could live with God on a daily basis, so that I have the the pleasure to be able to serve the Lord. Maybe it's to become a part of this community of witnesses who share this stone of witness together. Whatever it is, I hope you'll do it this morning. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, now with bread and cup, we say that we choose you. For some, it's a redecision. For some of us, it might be a first time. And Father, from here, if we say yes, we want to say yes every day. So for some, Father, it's going to mean faithfulness. For some, it's going to mean new frontiers of service that they've never explored, even though maybe they've been in the church their whole life. For some, it's going to be just getting rid of some things in our lives, Father, that we know don't belong there. But Father, at this time, as we take the bread and the cup, which represents the body and blood of Jesus, we're saying yes to the one that said yes to us. But Father, we, we beg your forgiveness where it's needed. We beg for your strength, Father, for our, at times, feeble knees. And maybe we, Father, when it's our time to go and rest with our ancestors, Father, that uh, we would be found faithful and that we would hear your well done for serving you every day of our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.